as you may remember, RUF is kind of a big deal because we have a podcast and I actually updated it for the first time since like April, I think. And get this guys, RUF is a big deal. We had like six listens. Yeah, yeah, give it up. Okay, uh, hopefully this is not too much behind us. Um, all right, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know we're going through the Gospel of Mark this semester, and we're doing a series on questions and answers with Jesus. So what tonight is going to look like is we're going to look at a passage and see uh, what question Jesus is answering in the text, and then what question uh, that answers for us, or what set of questions that may answer for us. And afterward, in, in the spirit of questions and answers, uh, I'm going to take about seven minutes to answer whatever questions you want to throw at me. Hannah, do you remember the seven? Okay, Hannah's gonna time that for us. Um, and speaking of timing, I'm gonna set a reminder for myself. Okay, so uh, let's pray and then we'll read the passage and we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reveal your son to us in the scriptures tonight. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to focus and enjoy you, uh, even with music going on behind us and everything else that's happening. Uh, We pray that for this time you would uh, draw us in close to you and teach us to live with you and teach us how you're always close with us. We pray that your grace would be magnified in your Son here tonight, that we would believe more wholly and truly in the gospel that you've actually given and, and not in anything that we tend to substitute for it. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. It's a short passage this week. And it says this, uh, talking about Jesus. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Okay, so um, again, this week, as I said the first week, I'll try not to be cheeky too often and get at questions that aren't actually there. Uh, There's a real question here tonight. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? Um, And the answer Jesus gives is pretty simple. He says, I didn't come to heal those who are well. I came to heal the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners, and so I want to see. I want to look at, look at together what that means for us. Uh, I think we can accurately say that the main thrust of this passage is this: that Christianity is only for sinners. Do you guys want to? I have that like in all caps and bold right here. Christianity is only for sinners. Uh, the question I think that this is answering for us tonight is who is Christianity for? Who's the gospel for? What's Jesus about and who did he come for? He came only for sinners. Without exception, you have to be a sinner to be a Christian. 
And I want to I want to talk tonight about how that moves beyond platitude. Like I'm a sinner, just a sinner saved by grace. Sorry, I don't know why I do that voice when I say that. That's probably making fun of people I don't mean to make fun of. That's just naturally what I do. Um, I actually held back a little. Um, But without exception, you have to be a sinner to be a Christian. This passage shows us who Jesus came for, not the righteous. Not the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so look, he's walking around and teaching, which we find him doing a lot in this passage. uh, Sorry, in this book. And as he walks by the sea, along the sea, he walks by this tax booth and he looks at it. Uh, and he sees this tax collector named Levi sitting there. And if you know anything about tax collectors in the Gospels, uh, they're not well-loved people by any means. Okay, they're not IRS agents, right? Like, they're not just normal people doing their job because everybody's got to have a job. No, they're, they're often people from whatever area Rome has conquered in this time period. So this guy is probably a Jew. Uh, he is a Jew. He's Matthew. The same Matthew who wrote the gospel. Matthew, by the way. Uh, even though his name here is recorded as Levi. And so he's a Jew who's been uh, recruited by the Roman government to collect taxes from his own people. Taxes to support a government that invaded them and make, makes them pay taxes. Not like they've bought into this and they're all about the vision of Rome. Right? They are an oppressed people. And Matthew or Levi here, he's, uh, maybe he didn't start out totally on board with this, right? But nonetheless, whatever he did, um, he's working for the Roman government. He's kind of a traitor to his own people. He's not well-loved. He's not depicted here as like this innocent guy who finds himself in a tough situation. We don't need to read that into the text. Uh, What we need to see is that he's one of the tax collectors and sinners, He's a bad person. Uh, maybe to get the... F- <laughs> There's so many noises. Maybe to get uh, the full meaning of this, we need to think about the context of Mark that we talked about a few weeks ago. Mark's gospel is being written to a people who are finding themselves persecuted in Rome. Uh, from what we can tell, this seems to be taking place... Uh, In the early 60s, Mark is a uh, a sort of assistant to Peter and Paul at times, and he's recording a lot of Peter's teachings on Jesus, okay? And he's writing this to a persecuted people, people being persecuted by the same government. It's only like 30 years later. And we've got to imagine how this sounds to people being killed and burned alive and beaten and dragged behind chariots and fed to animals alive and all of that. People huddled up in in little houses to worship God on Sunday mornings. And Jesus says that actually, or or Mark records for us a similar uh, character here. He says, look, to this audience, you're being persecuted by the Romans. Here's someone who is participating in that as well. This guy was working for the same Roman government that is now killing you, burning you, feeding you to animals. There's a connection here for the original audience. 
and they see what's going on, I think, that tax collectors are bad people. It's, it's hard to stress enough, I think, what's going on here, that tax collectors are bad. We tend to think of sinners as like, we're fallen, and we are. We're broken, and we are. But we tend to have this sort of like soft view, maybe of ourselves, where like we've passively given in to sin. I'm, I'm struggling with sin, right? Don't we always say that when what we really mean is I sought it out? But he's saying that this guy is a bad guy. And Jesus doesn't just go and call some innocent person. He calls this tax collector who's really disliked. So can you imagine how this preaches to the original audience? What is this like to be uh, having this uh, gospel read to you in a church service on a Sunday morning? They would probably have been reading a longer passage. And to come across this, this guy who's participating in Roman oppression, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, wait, are you telling me Jesus came from my enemies? Yes. That is what he's telling you. Jesus didn't come to call those made with the highest moral fiber. He came to call sinners. Okay, so I'm saying this all for two reasons. One, Jesus sets an example here for his followers. Do you see how he's training his disciples here? It says in verse 15 that in this dinner he goes into and he's, when he's sitting with the uh, tax collectors and sinners, his disciples are there too. Jesus isn't teaching his disciples uh, to form a holy huddle. He's not telling them to isolate from the world, right? He's teaching his disciples to sit and affiliate and eat with sinners. And notice, too, he's not handing out tracts or going through 10 steps. He's building relationships with people. What a model for evangelism. I'm not saying going through having one of those methods is necessarily wrong, but let's look at Jesus' own method. It doesn't mean all other methods are out, but but let's look at what he's doing. He's sitting down with sinners and building relationships with them and talking with them as he eats and drinks. And his disciples are there with him and he's building relationships with them, teaching them the good news. So if you are a believer and you're not spending time with sinners, I'm going to keep putting stuff in air quotes. I have to say that for the recording because they can't see it. A lot of, at least six people have listened to our podcast, guys. We don't know what sort of group sizes they had huddled around their, their phone to listen to it. Keep that in mind. That's why I say at least. Um, so listen to this. If you are a believer and you are not spending time with sinners, you're not acting like Jesus. Who are you taking the good news to, if not to those who need it? If your whole life is surrounded with people who are just like you and believe just like you and act just like you, you've got to ask yourself if you're living a life like Jesus. Okay, and the second reason that I was telling you all this background information earlier is this, that both religious people and non-religious people often regard Christianity as primarily teaching you that as an individual, you have to be a good person. Both religious people and non-religious people often think that that is what Christianity teaches. They think the Bible is a good book about good advice for how to make yourself right with God or how to be a good person or live a better life. 
It's just good moral advice designed to make you acceptable to God if you, if you do what's in there. Or acceptable to your religious community if you do what's in it. Uh, this is one of many passages in the whole Bible which corrects that misunderstanding. Okay, uh, we're going to keep talking about that. This is a bad transition, but we're still going on that. If you're a skeptic and you're here right now, I want you to look at the actions and teaching of Jesus here in this passage and see that Christianity is not about you being a good person. Look, no matter what you have heard in the past, no matter what the atmosphere around you with other Christians is, the very thing that tells us what to believe says that that's not what it's about. Jesus himself says that that's not what Christianity is about. He teaches us that right here. Jesus comes and calls a despised traitor to be one of his closest followers. And then he's found hanging out with a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners, just kind of kicking it with them. And when he's criticized for it, he says, why else would I be here? What else would I be doing? Uh, there's, here's what I want us as, if, if you're a skeptic or you're, you're struggling with what Christianity is about, I want us to think about this. There is no minimum buy-in to Christianity. There's no moral, moral power level. Uh, or for you Pokemon fans, there's no like HP that you have to hit to evolve into the next level Christian or to evolve into a Christian. That's not how it works. You don't hit some sort of uh, new height, some sort of new understanding, some sort of new level of morality and become a Christian. Jesus doesn't say to these people he's eating with, I would sit down to a meal with you if you'd clean up a little. He just joins them as they are. See, Jesus doesn't tell you to make yourself acceptable to him. He tells you, come to me, I'll take care of that. Jesus refers to himself here as a physician. He's the healer. Come to heal us of our greatest sickness, which is sin, as we talked about last week. He's not a coach. He's not even a physical therapist. He's not here to put people on a regimen so that they'll slowly grow out of this, uh, you know, sin limp that they have. He's the physician. He's the healer. We're sick in our whole being. We don't just have some sort of sin limp. We don't have one little thing going on in our lives. We're sick in our whole being. And he came to heal us by taking our diseases on himself. Or I should say our disease, our great disease on himself. He came to heal us with his own wounds. Okay, so don't misunderstand. Jesus will do surgery on you. He'll change you. He'll make you different. He'll remove things. Uh, and he will put you on a new healing program of sorts because repentance really is a healing way walking in the christian life you will find is life giving but he only does that in you on the basis of his work for you he only does that in you on the basis of his work for you the work Jesus is, is carrying out in your life to make you more like him as you continue to live and get older and try and pray 
It's based on the work he's already accomplished, objectively, a long time ago, having very little to do with you, right? You, you weren't there. You didn't do anything. He did it for you. And now what he's doing in you is based on that. He came to make you right with God based on his perfect life and death for you, not to tell you to be good enough. Okay, so if you're a skeptic here at Liberty, uh, you, you're probably reading the Bible at least some for class, maybe really quickly to get it over with, or maybe just not at all. Okay. Uh, it's so important that as you do read, if you're reading, that you don't think of the Bible as a lot of moral advice. This passage and many others in the Bible teach us the Bible is not a manual on how to make yourself acceptable to God. As we've been talking about in our small groups uh, on, on Jesus in the Old Testament the last couple weeks, uh, the Bible is not a book of good advice. It's not a book uh, essentially about good people doing, uh, setting good examples by doing good things. It's not essentially a book of moral fables. It's not a book of good advice. It's a book of good news. It is the ongoing story of Jesus, what he would do and did do for sinners. That is, again, the Bible is not a book of good advice. It's a book of good news. Okay, so that brings us uh, to our next question. I I think what uh, was answered for us there was, who is Christianity for? But I think this answers another question for us. Or it it actually, sorry, I should say, it it asks a question of us. Will you own being a sinner? Will you step into this? Will you you own it and accept that this is what you are? And this is important, y'all. Look at who's at the table with Jesus. It's not the scribes of the Pharisees. It's not the people who think that they're well or strong. It's the tax collectors and sinners. It's the people who desperately need him and know that they need him. So would you rather be with Jesus at the table and be a sinner? Or would you rather hold on to your self-respect and dignity and be away from Jesus? This is ridiculous. We'll be inside one day, I hope. Okay. Would you rather be with Jesus at the table and be a sinner? Or would you rather hold on to your self-respect and dignity and righteousness and be away from Jesus? We have a way of doing this in Christianity, don't we? We say, I live a good life. I go to church. I do the things. I don't need to confess my sins. I don't have a whole lot. Uh, I definitely don't need to call myself any names, like sinner. The way we say we don't need Jesus can be pretty sneaky. It's not always like that, like I just said, right? That's pretty outright. I don't know many people who actually say that and claim to be Christians. It's a lot sneakier than that. I think for us, especially maybe at Liberty, it looks something, um, it, it looks something a bit more like this, that as time goes on, people who started out in repentance and confession and dependence on Jesus begin to think that they will progress in the Christian life by their efforts, by doing good things. They start acting like they don't need Jesus to be a Christian. 
And maybe you've never put it into those words, but maybe you should ask yourself, am I living my Christian life as if I don't need Jesus? Do I need Jesus to be a Christian? Maybe you've got to put it in those words to realize exactly how you are living, how you're thinking, and what your posture is toward God. Um, Maybe you think, I already did all that confession stuff. Jesus forgave me. What do I have to do now? What do I have to do? What do I need to do to level up my walk with God? What do I have to do to be a better Christian or better person? What do I have to accomplish to show the world that God is good and finally please him? How good of a leader do I have to be? How good do my relationships have to be? And you could just keep going with a list of things that you would have to do. But if you're asking those questions, you've missed the main point of Christianity. You've missed the heart of the message. Jesus isn't requiring you to heal yourself or make yourself right with God. He already has made you right with God. All you have to do to be right with God is own being a sinner. I'm not saying revel in it. I'm saying own it. Remember, Christianity is not for the righteous. Jesus came to call sinners, and you don't stop being a sinner the day you become a believer. As long as you continue to sin, as long as you continue to be a sinner, you need Jesus. So, uh, skeptics, the same call is for you then. Christianity is not for good people. If you will embrace that, you will find true joy in Jesus and in his fellowship. Uh, J.C. Ryle, in commenting on this passage, said this. He's an old dead white guy. He said, happy indeed is the man who discovers his disease. It's a good thing to know you're a sinner. It doesn't sound like a good thing. This maybe isn't a happy message up until now. When you embrace how bad you are and recognize your need of Christ, then then you can go to him. Then you can be with Jesus. Then he will truly heal you and save you. But as long as you continue to deny your need of him, you will be the Pharisees standing back, not kicking it with Jesus, not fellowshipping with Jesus. You'll be them grimacing and staring and wondering, why Jesus isn't with you. Okay, so there's one more thing about this passage that I want to point out. Uh, One more way that this can be fleshed out for us, more of a point of application. Um, And if we're going to ask a question that I, I think this passage answers for us, it's this. What does it look like to be a justified sinner. I'll explain that word real quick. Uh, We use that word around RUF a lot, justified, uh, justification. Uh, We don't mean being proven right. Uh, it's, It's a theological term. And it means this, that Jesus has made us right with God. Objectively, Jesus did it. You have nothing to do with justification. It's something done outside of you for you. It is when Jesus took your sin on the cross and gave you his righteousness. That's the other side of it. Not only did he take your sin, he gave you his righteousness. That's being justified. It's being made right with God. Okay? Uh, And it happens 
freely, entirely of God's free love and grace and through faith alone. There's nothing to do to earn it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be anything like what we've been talking about up to this point. There's no way to earn it. So what does it look like to own up to being a sinner and then live in the light of that and live in the light of being justified? One thing I think we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of these tax collectors and sinners who are with Jesus and get the answer for this. Uh, The Pharisees are like standing at a distance, giving them sink eyes, right? And wondering why this rabbi is hanging out with such bad people. And they're like, whatever, we're with Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I'm reading in a little bit. It doesn't say that in the text, right? But, But scripture bears this out. And thousands of years of Christian experience bear this out, that these sinners and tax collectors, they don't have to give, they don't have to care uh, what these people think about them. Knowing that you are justified, that you've been made right with God because of the love of Christ. Knowing that there's nothing left to prove with God means who cares about what other people think of you? A justified life can be a free life. To be made right with God means you don't have to be slave to man anymore. Uh, Short caveat. What I don't mean is that you, you don't have freedom to disregard everything others say. If someone criticizes you, and especially if they're right, hey, you lied. <laughs> or, hey, you're really bad at skateboarding. Or, okay, like whatever it is. You don't have to be like, whatever, I'm right with God. No, actually, the other thing this gives you freedom to do, and in light of this passage, where we see that Jesus came to call sinners, is this, you can say, yeah, I'm a sinner. You're right. I was wrong. You're right, I messed up. I can say that freely because I already knew it. And thanks be to God, I have Jesus And he's still working on me. He's already made me right with God. I have a sure hope in heaven. I'm going to be sitting at a table with him one day, like this one, with a bunch of other freaks and tax collectors and sinners. Loving it. And yeah, if I messed up in this life, I can say, you're right. I'm right with God. I'll keep working on it. He'll keep working on me. I don't have to be scared about being criticized. I don't have to be scared about being proved wrong. So um, this is a wonderful freedom from the fear of what others think. It's freedom from trends. It's freedom from pressure to do stuff you don't want to do. It's freedom not to do stuff you do want to do also. Uh, It's freedom to give us, uh, sorry, to give up positive approval. Not just when we're afraid of someone, but when we desperately want their approval, when it's something good that we want. It's freedom to give that up because we have God's approval. Look at who Jesus was sitting with. Tax collectors and sinners. They're the ones he was taking this message to. And the opinions of men don't matter. The opinions of other women don't matter. The opinions of your roommates and friends They don't hold up to God's opinion of you, which is my child there has the righteousness of my true son, Christ. That tax collector, sinner, fiend, 
addict. No, 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 no. I gave him Jesus. That's what matters. If you can own up to being a tax collector and a sinner, that is the blessing that is waiting for you and the freedom that is waiting for you. And that can be the joy of the ongoing Christian life. Uh, Let's pray. And then we'll take questions for seven minutes.